time has dawned for the start of a, a new series. It is, after all, um, a new year. And what we're going to be doing over um, a number of weeks, months, is look at the New Testament letter of James. And I should say that the book of James is not a book without controversy. Uh, Some of you will probably know that Martin Luther denounced James as what he called a right epistle of straw with nothing of the gospel about it. And Luther relegated James to the appendix of his German translation of the New Testament. Moreover, we know that the church fathers, um, they made very little reference to James in their own writings. And James was missing from the earliest attempts at establishing the canon of the New Testament. Indeed, it was not until the end of the fourth century that both Eastern and Western, uh, the Eastern and Western parts of Christendom were actually prepared to acknowledge the book of James as being, um, you know, authentic scripture. And really, there were three main reasons why there was a question mark over uh, the the status of the, the letter of James. First of all, some regarded it as just basically a Jewish ethical tract. It was um, akin to, you know, what you would get in the Old Testament, um, like the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, but somehow it managed to get into our New Testament. And unsurprisingly, the early church heretic heretic Marcion, he excluded uh, James from his admittedly very radical uh, New Testament canon. For Marcion, you see, was very, very anti-Jewish. And because James sounded so Jewish, he would not have it in his canon. Although I have to say that Marcion regarded none of our Old Testament as genuinely scripture because it was Jewish. But it was also the fact that James was excluded from the Muratorian canon of AD 170, which is recognized as the first legitimate attempt at establishing a New Testament canon. But James was not allowed or was not found within that canon. Secondly, another issue that people had with the book of James was the the scarcity of references to Jesus Christ in the epistle. There are only actually two references, two explicit references to Jesus, to Jesus Christ in all of the letter. There is no mention of what we have been thinking about just now, about the death of Jesus. There is no mention of Jesus' resurrection. 
And then the third reason why there was this question mark over the, the, the inclusion of the book of James in the canon was that James was seen by many as contradicting, as directly contradicting what the Apostle Paul taught regarding the core matter of how a person is justified, comes to be justified in the sight of God. To summarize, are we justified by faith, as the Apostle Paul teaches very clearly in his epistles, or are we justified by works, as James appears to say in his letter? And this third reason was indeed the main beef that Luther had with the book of James. Luther held that James had mangled the scriptures on this most fundamental of issues. Hence, he relegated it to an, the appendix um, in, his, in his sort of canon. Anyhow, James has made it into the New Testament, and James has also made it into Castlereagh Fellowship's ministry schedule for the year 2023. So there are going to be a number of talks on the book of James. There's actually going to be eight in total. And all really that I can do this morning is do an introduction. Okay, this is going to just be an introduction <coughs> to the book of James. So I apologize in advance if you find it a bit dry, a bit technical. But really, you know, you, you have to do the spade work before you start into the main text itself. So we're going to begin with a reading. And I do promise you that this is going to be one of the shortest, if not the shortest, that you'll ever hear in Castlereagh Fellowship. Because our reading for this morning is James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of his own word. So, some background to uh, the letter. So, we've got to begin then with the author. The author. And, of course, the writer introduces himself as James. So, excellent so far, excellent, we know the writer is James. But the question is, who was James? Who was this James? The name itself, James, is derived from the Hebrew for Jacob. And this was a very, very common name in Jesus' day. You know, James was a very common name. Indeed, we have reference to a number of Jameses in the New Testament. There is James, the son of Zebedee and brother of John. He was one of Jesus's inner circle, but he was uh, martyred for his faith in AD 44. 
There was James, the son of Alphaeus, another apostle who most commentators think also doubled up as James the Younger. There was also James, the father of Judas, the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot. And fourthly, we have James, the actual brother of Jesus, the natural brother of Jesus. And it is this latter James that most commentators believe is the actual author of our letter, although, you know, that view is not without its, its dissenters. Some, of it, some people have indeed argued for yet another James. Uh, indeed, some people think that this letter was written by somebody of a completely different name who just happened to use to write under the pseudonym of James. One of the reasons for the reluctance to accept that it was James, the Lord's brother, who wrote the letter was, and obviously you need to be an expert in Greek to know this, but apparently the actual quality of the Greek language is very, very sophisticated in the letter. And some have said that James, growing up in a sort of very meager um, household, you know, with limited education, that he couldn't have written that quality of Greek. But on the other hand, James would, of course, have been surrounded with Greek speakers. And in any case, it is possible that if the quality of the Greek is so good, um, James could have, like Paul did, use an amanuensis, a scribe, to write the letter for him. So we are going to stick with the traditional view, okay? So we are going to assume, for our purposes, that the person, the James who wrote our letter here, was actually the brother of Jesus. What then do we know of Jesus, the Lord's brother? Well, we certainly know that like the rest of Jesus' brothers and sisters, James originally did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But Paul informs us that after his death, the risen Lord Jesus appeared unto James, and James then became a believer in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And James would then go on to become one of the pillars of the church based in (laughs) Jerusalem. Significantly, the Apostle Paul actually deferred to James's authority. And at the, the famous Council of Jerusalem that we read about in Acts chapter 15, it is James who is the one who gives the key ruling on the issues that have to be uh, addressed. Tradition tells us 
that James became known as a man of righteousness and a man of prayer. Indeed, it is said, now this comes from church tradition, it obviously isn't in the pages of the Bible, but it comes from sort of pretty reliable church tradition that James got the nickname of James the Just, James the Just, and part of the reason for that was that his knees were so calloused. I know some people here have bad knees, but his knees were so calloused. And that was because of his habit of he knelt on the, 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 the stone floor of the Jerusalem temple as he prayed each day. His knees actually became so hard as a result of that. And the Roman historian Eusebius, he supplies us with the details of James's death. James died in AD um, 62. And what happened was that there was a two-month gap um, between the exit of one Roman governor and his replacement being appointed And the Jewish high priest at the time, Ananus, Ananus, he took advantage of that gap to have James tried by the Jewish Sanhedrin on the charge of breaking the Mosaic law. And James was sentenced to death by stoning there, there is again, again, this comes from tradition, um, but there is a tradition, uh, there is a, yeah, a, 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 a traditional story that James was actually taken to the top of the Jerusalem temple and he was thrown off it. He did not actually, he wasn't immediately dead upon the fall and they then stoned him and actually um, clubbed him to death. Now, as I say, maybe that is a bit fanciful. We don't know. But the one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that James, who was the pillar, a pillar of the Jerusalem church, did die a martyr's death. He died for his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So enough on James himself. Let's turn now to the issue of the letters recipients. Who was James actually writing to? The late Alec Mateer wrote, if James were to post his letter today, it would be marked return to sender on the grounds of being insufficiently addressed. It might also arrive late today as well due to royal mail strikes, but that is another story. No names are given, and there's no specific destination. Rather, it's addressed to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations. The technical term for this is the diaspora. And the diaspora was a term used for those Jews ever since the time that the Assyrians had come in and conquered uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the people of Israel had been, you know, deported. Um, 
it, the term diaspora had been used since those days basically for Jews who were living outside their homeland of Palestine. And in Roman times, partly due to the improved road network and all, um, many Jews voluntarily, many Jews voluntarily decided to leave Jerusalem and to go to other lands in the Roman Empire. The Jews, of course, were infamously, famously great, um, you know, tradesmen and so on. And so they would go and they would ply their trade in other parts of the Roman Empire. In fact, it is thought um, amongst historians today, it is reckoned that um, in sort of Jesus' day, that there were between five and eight million Jews living outside Palestine. Whereas within Palestine, there was a maximum of only two million Jews. So most Jews lived outside of Palestine. Therefore, some think that James was writing this letter just to Jews who were outside of Palestine. More likely, James was writing specifically to Messianic Jews. Not just Jews in general, but to those Jews who had come to realize that Jesus was the Messiah and who had put their faith in him, but who were just now living outside of Palestine. Certainly, James is fond of referring to his readers as brothers. And that, it, it, that some 15 times in the letter, you will read the term brothers. And that does suggest the idea of fellow Jewish background believers. But we cannot exclude altogether Gentile Christians from James's audience. That is, you know, Gentiles, non-Jews who had come to faith in Christ. Because that term, 12 tribes, can be used in a metaphorical sense for Christians in general. Uh, the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, he uses the same term, diaspora. And it is absolutely clear from Peter's letter that he is talking to Christians from a pagan background and not just those from a Jewish background. But it is probably true to say, almost definitely it is true to say, that most of James's intended audience would have been from a Jewish background. And we can also detect from the contents of James's letter that many of his audience were finding life really challenging, really difficult. And some, though not all, were poor and were being exploited by the rich. More will be said about that as we make our way through the, this, the, the book in the coming weeks and months. So that, we've done the author, we've done the audience, the, the, the readers. What about the date of the letter? Unfortunately, once again, there is disagreement on this. Many, and especially those who are convinced 
that it was James, the Lord's brother, who wrote the letter. Many think that this letter is very early, that it was written sometime between AD 45 and AD 48, which would make this letter probably the earliest of all the New Testament writings, even earlier than any of Paul's writings. Others, however, take the view that it suits better a later date, um, perhaps close to James's martyrdom in AD 62. Personally, I go with the earlier date, but what do I know at the end of the day? But I say most, most would probably favor the earlier date for the letter. What about then the type of letter? Well, this is actually very easily answered. This is what is known as a circular or a general letter. As we've seen, it was addressed to no particular individuals or any particular assembly of believers. And thus we can conclude that it was to be read by, or more likely read to, various groupings of believers throughout the various lands of the Roman Empire. And then I want to say a wee bit about the style of the letter. In fact, I want to say there are six things that I want to say about the style of the letter. The first one is, the letter is written in the style of Hebrew wisdom literature, where there is a cyclical repetition of topics. If you remember back to when Jeff, um, Jeff's series on Proverbs, and remember we saw in the book of Proverbs that the same topics would keep coming up over and over again. It was a cyclical dealing with the topics. Well, this is the same as with James. You get the same topics coming up again as you wake your way through the book. It is not like Paul's writings. Paul's writings are incredibly linear. You know, you just follow the thought thought flow down through each chapter. It's very logical, you know, in in order that way. Um, The apparent absence of structure has driven some to near despair, including uh, Luther, the letter's number one critic. Luther accused James of throwing things together chaotically. And modern day commentators also struggle. Derek Tidball describes James as an apparently disorganized, fast moving letter. Sam Albury speaks of random snippets. And William Barclay wrote, it is difficult, if not impossible, to extract from it a continuous and coherent plan. I fear that even the late Professor David Gooding, with his famous thought flow approach, would have found James a challenging book to get the thought flow. It is so notoriously difficult 
to um, get that sort of overarching um, you know, view, view of it. Fortunately for my purposes, I'm not attempting to do that. All I'm going to do is take a number of separate topics and treat them sort of independently. So that's the first thing. It's that sort of style of um, Hebrew wisdom literature. The second thing to say about the style is James adopts a very abrupt style. The letter contains a number of short, pithy sayings and, you know, condemnations, denunciations, which are very alike the style of the Old Testament prophets. Sam Albury says, James is a writer in a hurry who shoots from the hip. And Alec Mateer comments upon the abruptness with which James moves from one topic to another. So, you know, just very quick changes from one thing to another. And then, as we'll see, the same topic can just pop up again out of the blue. Number three, James writes in a very vivid manner. He is very fond of using illustrations. So you'll get things like, you know, references to fire and horses and ships and mist. And again, that is very like the style of the Old Testament prophets. Fourthly, more than any other New Testament author, James is very prone to using imperatives. An imperative is a command, a command saying. Apparently, in this short letter of five chapters, there are a total of 54 commands that James issues. Warren Wearsby remarks, James did not suggest, he commands. And David Pawson writes, the key word in this letter is the two-letter word, do. You'll see it time and time again. Do, do, do. It's all about commands. Number five, the letter shows the marks of someone who has had first-hand exposure to the teachings of Jesus you know, during Jesus' earthly ministry. Sam Albury remarks of Jesus, he may not be named much in this letter, but his presence is felt throughout. And in particular, there is a very clear resonance with Jesus' most famous body of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. William Barclay reckons that there are 23 allusions in the book of James to the Sermon on the Mount. And sixthly, James's letter is intensely practical rather than being heavy on theology. And I know that maybe gets as music to uh, many ears here. It's very, very practical. Kent Hughes writes, James begins right off with a series of practical admonitions and continues on non-stop to the end. The letter is about ethics. It's about ethics. It's about moral behavior, 
more than it is about Christian beliefs. Um, I love how Derek Tidball describes it. He says it is theology in working men's clothes. You know, it's really down-to-earth, practical stuff. David Pawson says it is working out what God is working in. And John Dixon helpfully points out that the problem for James's readers apparently was not um, unlike, say, the Apostle John. The problem for James's readers wasn't heresy. It wasn't false doctrine. It was actually immorality. It was wrong living. Therefore, James has more to say about how we are to live rather than what we are to believe. What about the themes that are taken up by James? Well, we have trials and temptations. We have the danger of loose speech. We have the sin of favoritism towards the rich and discrimination against the poor. We have the importance of spiritual wisdom and maturity. We have the importance of prayer. We have the issue of justice for the oppressed and justice that will be faced by the oppressor. We have the importance of single-mindedness and consistency in our walk with God. And we have the necessity of backing up a profession of faith saying that you believe in Jesus with actual good works. And those are the topics that we're going to be taking up um, as we, we, we continue with our series. But before just wrapping up for today, I want to make just a couple of observations regarding the first bit of this morning's text. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, First of all, note how James introduces himself. He calls himself a servant. And in the Greek, the word that is used is doulos or slave. It is a word that speaks of submission and obedience. And it reflects then James' own sense of humility. From James' lips, there's no mention of the fact that he was the Lord's brother. There is no mention of his status as the head of the Jerusalem church. No boasting. He was a slave of Christ. But what we must, what we mightn't realize is that the word doulos could carry a second meaning because it also carried the meaning of authority. As John MacArthur points out, The concept of being a doulos or a servant of God was actually considered a great honor in Greek culture. It was the title ascribed to the prophets of the Old Testament. And thus, as John Dixon comments, doulos was both a title of humility, but it was also a badge of honor. And let it be said that we, as Christians, We also are servants of God. We are his slave. We have no rights of our own. They were lost. He has bought us 
bought us with a price. You are not your own. Jesus now is your master. You do not have the right to say to uh, Jesus, I'll not go along with your teaching on this particular issue. I'll do my own thing. No, you are his servant. But it is no servile bondage. We possess the immense dignity of belonging to God through Jesus Christ. You and I, if we are genuine believers in Christ, are God's representatives in this world, charged with carrying out his orders, but also basking in the dignity of being prized members of his household. And secondly, I want you to note how James conflates God with the Lord Jesus Christ. James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the slave of both God and of Jesus. And the title used of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is obviously a title of deity. It is a title of God. So in spite of the scarcity of explicit references to Christ in his letter, James clearly regarded Jesus as being the Lord. Indeed, in the only other direct reference to Jesus in the letter that you'll get at the, the first verse of chapter 2, James, Jesus is described as our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or literally our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory, which again is a title of deity. James had come to be convinced that the one that he had grown up with in that modest home in Nazareth, his earthly brother, was none other than God manifest in the flesh. And he is the one whom you and I worship today. We worship not just Jesus the man, we worship Jesus the God-man. My word count has hit 2,500. I'm five minutes over, so I'm going to stop. I hope you haven't found today a bit too dry. Um, indeed, my prayer is that it will actually whet your appetite to read the book of James, and I commend the book to your own reading over the next uh, weeks as we continue to study it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.